This webcast is for informational purposes only. The content provided does not constitute medical advice or diagnosis, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The opinions and information provided during the webcast are for informational and discussion purposes only. We do not warrant or guarantee the accuracy, completeness, adequacy, or currency of the content provided. This webcast is not a substitute for professional psychological or medical treatment, advice, assistance, or services. Should you or a family member need help with any of the matters discussed during the program, please contact a competent licensed professional for assistance. Welcome to Caught Between Generations. I'm your host, Dr. Merle Griff. If you care for any other person in your life, then you are a caregiver. Many people don't actually think of themselves that way, but you are. You're a family caregiver and most likely are caring in various degrees for people in multiple generations. You need one source for the information needed to manage all of these people in your life. It's not easy, but we can help. On Caught Between Generations, we will be discussing all things multi-generational with practical tips you can use right now to make your life easier. Today's guest is Dr. Stan Tatkin. Dr. Tatkin is a clinician, a researcher, and the developer of a therapeutic technique called PACT. It is a highly successful technique for helping couples. Dr. Tatkin is also the author of Wired for Love, how understanding your partner's brain and attachment style can help you diffuse conflict and build a secure relationship. Caring for multiple generations is one of the most significant stresses couples can endure. It is not the cause of the stress, but it can heighten the intensity of issues that are already present. I think you will find Dr. Tatkin's innovative approach very informative and helpful in many ways. Welcome, Dr. Tatkin. Hi, Dr. Merle. It's so good to have you with us. Thank you. So, Dr. Tatkin, explain to us what really is attachment theory. Well, attachment theory is a biological theory that goes back to the idea that human beings, primates, are driven by the need to attach, to be connected to at least one other species specific, one other, right? So in the human world, it's another person. And that that relationship has to remain safe and secure if we're to be able to have the resources to develop and to be healthy and not be anxious all the time. So attachment basically means that you as my caregiver, you are the most important thing to me. That tethering, that closeness must be absolutely safe and secure for me to thrive and for me to be healthy. But you know, Dr. Tuckin, attachment theory sounds to me like something that really has to do with children and parents. I don't understand what the relevance is to couples. Well, it's we start off as a dyad. We start off as the first couple, and that's usually mother and child. That continues on through life. We're dyadic creatures. That means we're always in twos, in pairs. So as my adult partner, I'm an attachment figure to you. And you are to me, right? We are uh, bound by this orbit where we have to take care of each other, where we depend on each other for a sense of safety and security in the world. Otherwise, we're too vulnerable, right? We spend too many resources trying to deal with life slings and arrows and to deal with the dangers that are in the environment. 
So do you think that the couple, you know, provides that for each other? They should be providing that for each other, that sense of security, that sense of balance in life? Well, it, it, this is a, you know, if you don't do that, then we know from infants and children and teenagers and adults, if we do not feel that we have cover, if we're not connected to another person that uh, upon whom we can depend, then we are not going to have resources for other things like being a good person or developing or being good at anything for that matter. This is so important to the biology of the human being that it's a necessity. It's not a luxury. So couples should be there for each other. They should be in the foxhole together. Imagine being in a foxhole together. They have each other's backs. They're experts on each other. They know each other better than they know themselves. They are able to travel through time, through the world, and deal with almost anything because, again, they are taking care of each other. They're in each other's care. That's the way it's supposed to be, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I hadn't planned to ask you this question, but listening to you, it makes me think about how difficult it must be for couples who are separated. How do you bridge that gap? I mean, I don't mean legally separated. I mean, people who are in the military, uh, businessmen who leave every Sunday night or Monday morning and don't come home till Friday night. Um, There are a lot of situations that people have to live with where they're separated. So how do you bridge that gap? Well, I mean, if we were in tri, if we were, uh, you know, in a tribal nation, we'd be away, but we'd also be around extended family in a community that that holds us, right? But in our modern time, we don't have that uh, so much. But hey, we have modern technology, so we can uh, we can send a picture to each other versus you know via email or text messaging. We can stay in contact with each other with each other through the day and check in with each other. Um, there's a lot of things we can do today to stay in touch with each other we weren't able to do some time ago. But again, again, if we were hunters and gatherers, we would have the community to to hold us uh, while our partner was out there doing whatever they do. And then comes back. So as the saying goes, we never have enough buds, right? Never have enough what? We never have enough buds. We never have enough friends. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, you can never have enough friends. um, But we still depend on usually one other person. Even if we have a lot of friends, there's one person who's our go-to person. And that usually in the attachment world, we consider the primary attachment figure. So what do you think are the most common mistakes that couples make? In their relationships? Well, I think one is people take for granted the idea that they have to stay present and pay attention to one another. They, you know, by, by paying attention and present, that means enough eye to eye, face to face time. We're visual animals. And because we tend to automate everything and everything that's new becomes old soon, that's a way of making way for new information to come in, we automate each other and our partners as well which means that we're going to operate by memory only. Real time is extremely fast. And if we're operating by memory, I'm going to make certain presumptions about you. My fast brain is going to act and react according to what I think you're going to do. And this is how we start to become threatening to one another. Um, We have a brain that tilts towards war. We tend to be more negative. We have a negativity bias in our brain. And so it's so easy to go to war with each other that we take that for granted. If partners paid attention 
and learned their partner well and knew how to uh, deal with each other in a fair, just, and sensitive way, we could have a long-term relationship without trouble. But most people don't know this. Most people uh, take the relationships for granted and they're acting automatically all the time and making mistakes all the time. So are you implying that we have a tendency to be more aggressive or to be more negative than we do positive? That's correct. Um, a brain unattended will always go negative, always be more aggressive, always have more trouble because of the negativity bias in the brain, which is why we need other people. We need to interact. We're transactional, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, transactional species. And so, yes, left alone, children who are neglected are more fearful, more aggressive than children even who are abused. That's, so, yeah. that's very interesting, actually. Yeah. I, ne I never thought about, I mean, in working with seniors, we always talk about one of the problems they have is they're so isolated. Right. And um, I actually never connected um, that, that some people may come become actually aggressive because yes. they are isolated. They're isolated. Well, that's why, you know, putting somebody in solitary confinement is considered cruel and unusual um, because a mind left alone begins to feed on itself. So we need other people. We are social animals and we need to interact. Um, but we have to be careful because the tilt of my head or the change in my voice or the look on my face or the timing in my reaction to you may remind you of something that is threatening or may mean something to you that is threatening. And so we have to really pay attention. If I see that I'm talking to you and your face suddenly goes south, if I want this relationship to work, I have to stop everything and pay attention. I have to attend to you and you have to attend to me. It's very easy to misunderstand each other. In fact, it's easier to misunderstand each other than it is to understand. So what are the common elements that you see that go across healthy relationships, positive relationships? All healthy relationships are what we call secure functioning, and all secure functioning relationships are healthy. Secure functioning means that we are in a truly mutual system, good for me, good for you. We don't do anything without the other person being okay, because if you go down, I go down. So in this truly mutual two-person system, we operate according to fairness, justice, and sensitivity. If we don't, then the environment becomes dangerous for both of us. You know what my problem is with the concept, though, of fairness and, and justice is that I hear young, young people now in their relationships, yes. Yes. everything that gets translated into percentages. So I hear young mm -hmm. people say, well, you know, I do 58% of the work, you know, and right. he only does X percent of the work, whatever that is. Um, and it just, it, it just drives me a little crazy because I don't understand that concept of percentages. I mean, what is fair for one person at one time, you know, it may have to may not be so fair for the other person that time. And you have right. to, I think, balance it. Well, when people are bean counting like that, it's usually because they come from a culture that is insecure. That is, it's a one-person system. Good for me. If it's not good for you, sorry. So if you have two people that are looking out for themselves in a, in a love 
or primary attachment relationship, people have to understand that that doesn't work. Um, if I, if you see me looking out for myself, you begin to look out for yourself. And so you have a system now that is self-protecting where the relationship no longer comes first. My interests come first and that's a threat, right? As soon as my interests come first, you have reason to be very, very cautious and very uh, considered in what you do. So this kind of behavior is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, it is short-sighted because some people, a lot of us come from families where there was a lot of unfairness and injustice and insensitivity. We carry that forward into our adult relationships and we behave the same way. Even though we don't like having it done to us, we don't realize that we're doing it. You know, I, I'm sorry. When I'm listening to this, I get a yes. little concerned, just a little oh. concerned, okay, that one of our family caregivers might listen to this and say, oh, but Dr. Merrill has been talking about in order to continue to care for other people, I have to take care of myself. All right. Well, but yeah. and, and, and is that not then being selfish and having that oneness? Okay. Okay. So, here so we're explain talking about it. Here we're talking about two different things. If I'm taking care of somebody who's ill, who ab absolutely needs me, that's not a symmetrical situation. That's going back to being mother baby, right? So I have to say, if I'm the caregiver, I have to somebody, I have to have somebody caring for me. So we're, we're talking about if you are a caregiver, do you have a primary relationship with someone who are you, you are interdependent with where it is symmetrical. You're taking care of each other. You can't take care of somebody unless you're being cared for. As a therapist, I can't care for others unless I'm being cared for myself. This is how it works. So this is why we worry about caregivers where it's one direction. They're uh, often vulnerable to getting very sick, very ill, because it takes a lot of energy. Somebody has to be caring for the caregiver. If it's not that other person because they're ill, it must be somebody who has resources to spare. Interesting. So let's talk about the couple's bubble. Sure. I love that term, the couple's bubble. Couple's bubble, yes. Yeah, I know. I just love it. It has great imagery. So explain that to us. Well, think of, it, think of it as, you know, uh, an image where you are uh, – you are sharing an ecosystem, uh, you're a terrarium, if you will. This is the air we breathe, the water we drink. We're responsible for the status of that system, that safety security system. We protect each other. If one of us dirties this environment, we both suffer, right? So the couple bubble is an environment that we create, you and I, where we have each other's backs. We know each other better. We know ourselves. We're good at each other. We're good managers of each other. And we're jealous of our resources. We don't let third people, third things, third interests intrude in such a way that either of us gets thrown under the bus or either of us becomes relegated to third will. We know how important it is that we remain the roof of the house because other people depend on that. So the couple bubble means that we're permeable, but we're also a team. We protect each other. And third things, third people have to knock on our door. We have to get permission to take resources. So does those third parties include extended family, yep. you know, in-laws, yep. um, grandparents, yep. 
work. Grandchildren. Children. Right. Children. Um, drugs and alcohol. Um, old flames. Uh, anything. Old flames. <laughs> uh, yes. Our church. Whatever it is that's comes, that comes between us. This is a strictly biological matter. This is not about, um, this is not a value judgment. We know that uh, mammals pair bond so that they can protect their offspring, but also each other from the harsh environment and from predators. The reason we do this is because we can and because the alternative is not good. The alternative means we're exposed to the environment. So this goes beyond this idea of couple bubble, goes beyond personality or mood. It goes beyond whether I feel like this. These are things we agree on uh, that we do for each other because to not do them leaves us exposed. Let's talk about rituals. Um, I'm a firm believer in rituals as acting as anchors uh, for many of us. So explain to us how you feel about the importance of routines and rituals. Well, very, very important. It's important to the couple as it is to the entire family and and to the community. So here's an example of a ritual. You come in from home and the primaries greet each other before anything else, before children, pets, anything. That's a ritual. We greet each other first as a way of averaging out each other's nervous systems because we're, we are at the top of the food chain. So we take care of each other first, inside, outside, home, not home. The first reunion is ours. And then we take care of others. Another ritual, we put each other to bed at night. We wake up together, we launch each other in the morning and the day. We know these two times, morning and nighttime, are the most vulnerable for all human beings, children and adults alike. Ignore that and your day doesn't go as well. So these are important rituals. If people had no other time during the day or week, the nighttime and the morning are the two most important times. So does that go back to my grandmother's old adage about never go to bed angry? Uh, you can go to bed angry. That's not so bad as long as you're not angry upon waking, as long as it doesn't last for very long. Because people who are staying angry and separate are going to get sick. They're going to get physically ill. We know this uh, from many, many studies mm-hmm. on human behavior and what happens neurochemically. The longer you stay away, the longer you stay angry and you don't fix a relationship, the more vulnerable you are to physical illness. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about fighting because some people will say fighting is good. You know, it's an opportunity to vent your feelings, get out the hostility. And other people will say fighting is terrible. You know, it's it's disastrous for a relationship for couples. I mean, what's your opinion about fighting? To to be in a relationship is to fight and to have conflict. (laughs) There is no way around it. Two different brains, two different ways of seeing the world, two different feelings and thoughts and intentions. That's the way of the world. So fighting is good so long as the couple is safe from the idea that this relationship will end tomorrow. This fight will end our relationship is what is the poison. If you and I give each other assurances that we're in for the long haul, I will never leave you. We're strapped in for the ride. You and I can fight without fear of, of the, the real death, which is this relationship may not exist tomorrow. That's one. Two, we mm-hmm. fight not to get our way. We fight to, to maintain the relationship, the integrity. I fight for what I want, but I also know what you want. 
And I also care about what you want and what you fear. If I don't, then the fighting will never work. We fight to get our way, not at the cost of the other person, but in tandem with their wants. It's a win-win situation. We fight for win-win, not win-lose. Yeah, it makes sense. Yes, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, I want to get back to the issue of of fighting, though. I want to talk about it in terms of technology. Sure. Um, and digital fighting. Right, like because, throwing your phones at each other. You mean? No, no, no. I was thinking about texting. Actually, okay. I was thinking that, that that through emails and text, even in in my other relationships outside my couple relationship. I mean, sometimes I send an email and someone calls me and says, I don't understand why you were so angry. And I'm like, I wasn't angry at all. So right. it's all, it's very, very open to misinterpretation. Yes. So I do get concerned about emails and especially texting with as much right. texting as we do. You know, how, how much argument do you really want to have over a text? If people are not good in dealing with each other at close distances, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, they should not communicate through texting, email, Twitter, or anything else, even over the phone. We need to be first regulated face-to-face, eye-to-eye. The problem with all these other forms of communication is that the error rate in terms of misinterpretation goes sky high. And it's hard to correct. Ordinarily, when we're face-to-face, these little blips, these little misunderstandings can be course-corrected immediately. But then now we have these, you know, these ways to impulsively send things. And depending on the mood of the person who's receiving it, um, and by the way, state changes memory, memory changes state and perception, that person sees you as angry even though you're even doing a smiley face. This is the way the human brain works. We're not meant to text each other in an emotional way. If we're fine, it's great. If we're arguing, it's bad news. We don't even want people fighting together while driving in the car because they're, they're looking straight ahead. The eyes are, uh, eyes are built uh, in such a way that we can only see things in high definition as we look straight ahead. To the side, we're legally blind. So we know a part of the brain that sweeps for fear and threat gets triggered more often when we see faces at a glance. You do not drive and fight or talk about emotional issues. We've been talking to Dr. Stan Tatkin, who's the author of Wired for Love. This has been a great interview and I think very, very helpful, Dr. Tatkin. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Can you tell us how we can contact you, how we can get your book, read your blog? Well, you can get the book anywhere. Uh, you can download the audio from almost any place, uh, audio.com or Audible, I think it is. But you can go to stantatkin.com. That's, uh, that's for my, uh, my material. But if you're interested in training and you want to know about the back end of this, the Pact Institute dot com is where you'll get that information. Okay. And that's Pact, P-A-C-T. Pact.com. Yes. Dr. Tatkin, thank you so much. And thank you for all your wonderful work. I'm sure you've helped many, many couples. And I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And good luck to people in your audience. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you. If you've been listening to Caught Between Generations, you know that at the end of each show, I provide you with my final thoughts. My takeaway today has to do with routines 
Each of us has daily routines. As couples, we also establish routines often without realizing it. Most of the time, these routines help us through difficult and challenging times, especially in times of change. But during periods of change, sometimes these routines can become disruptive. So let me give you a personal example. For instance, when my husband came home from work and I came home from work, we kind of had a routine where we had 20 to 30 minutes of quiet time. Each of us just needed to decompress and just kind of be alone while I was making dinner. And it worked for us really, really well. Then suddenly our first child was born and I wasn't working anymore. I was at home with a baby all day and he would walk in the door. And the first thing that I would do was start blabbing at him, blah, 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 blah. How was your day? Talk to me, talk to me, talk to me, talk to me. It was annoying and it was disruptive because that was a routine that we had established without even realizing it. So my takeaway is When change happens or is about to happen, try to analyze your routines and think through how you may need to adapt them. Not allowing your daily routines to get in the way will be helpful. Adapting your daily routines, even for a brief period of time, will support you through the period of change. This is Dr. Merrill. I want to hear from you. Write to me at info at Caught Between Generations. Wishing you a peaceful week, and as always, thank you for listening.